Well, this is uh, my chance to say good morning, church. Very good to see all of you here, and a special nod to uh, anyone who might be tuning in, you're not physically present here. Uh, If you would go ahead and open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. If you have a pew Bible like me here, it's page number 847. Uh, We're going to be in that text in just a bit here. We're continuing on in our series of Weird Tales from the Bible. I've really enjoyed uh, this series of just because it's okay to admit that the Bible has a lot of strange and weird stuff. And when, uh, Ozzy, is that up here, the, the Weird Tales? Where's my PowerPoint here? Okay, we're working on it. Okay, that's fine. Uh, but today we're, so we're going to continue on. Even these most obscure and weird passages can uh, teach us about, uh, about Jesus, about what we are, what we can uh, learn from Jesus. And I'll throw this up here in a second here. Uh, today's tale is actually going to come, it's directly from Jesus and from his, uh, his travels. And I've called it Jesus Gets Hangry. All right. And this is coming on the heels, uh, this, in Mark chapter 11, we have the triumphal entry. Uh, you might remember Palm Sunday is uh, what we remember it as, which is when, uh, here we go. All right, there's Weird Tales, and let's go. Jesus gets angry, because I really, I work so, uh, there we go. All right, I'm just, I'm so proud of this. I had to throw it up there. All right, <laughs> and uh, all right. So Jesus enters Jerusalem on uh, Palm Sunday. Uh, they are laying all of their, uh, the palm branches and their cloaks across, and Jesus enters Jerusalem as, on a borrowed donkey, uh, basically, uh, and everyone's shouting, Hosanna, praise to God in the highest, and uh, they're celebrating Jesus' entry as king. And then we come to the next day, the Monday after this Sunday, and we pick up this story in verse 12. It says, on the following day, uh, when They came from Bethany, he meaning Jesus, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree uh, in in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And uh, and when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And then uh, we come back to the tree in verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, here we go, yep, as as they passed by in the morning, Uh, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you had cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Is that weird? I mean, come on. I mean, what does that have to do with anything, Jesus? Can I get an explanation here? All right, what in the world is going on? I've, uh, in my research of this text, I actually came across this synopsis uh, by BuzzFeed, and it says, Jesus is hungry one day. He goes to grab a fig off a tree. The tree has no fruit, only leaves, so Jesus loses his mind and curses it. May you never bear fruit again, he says, and the tree dies. His followers look on, so surprised, so Jesus tells them, that's nothing, bro. I could throw a mountain, I could make a mountain jump into the sea if I wanted to. I mean, that seems about accurate from what we just read, right? But this is what happens when we leave out huge chunks of text from the Bible. It's called proof texting. It's when you come to the Bible with an idea in mind, and I can tell you, if you have something that you want the Bible to authenticate for you, you can take one snippet of Scripture, take it out of context, and make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. And that's not what we are about here. We are going to come to the Bible and let the Bible rewrite our mind and plant our ideas. Because in between these two encounters of the fig tree, 
I kind of clued you into this. We had to skip a huge chunk of text. We have the story of Jesus clearing the temple of the money changers. And it's tempting to think that, well, we have this fig tree moment, then we have the temple moment, and then we come back to the tree. But if you're going to track with me, we'll see how all of these are connected, that these are all variations on the same theme. And so the interest of not proof texting, let's recap the story again from the beginning. On Monday after the triumphal entry, uh, Jesus and his disciples were coming back to Jerusalem from Bethany. Bethany was about four four miles from Jerusalem, and everything was by foot these days, so it would take you about an hour to walk and to make it from Bethany into Jerusalem. And so uh, Jesus was hungry. He comes upon a fig tree covered in leaves, and he goes looking for figs. And after inspecting the tree, he didn't find any fruit. And Mark writes, because it wasn't the season for figs. And so Jesus says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Now, did Jesus get up on the wrong side of the bed? I mean, uh, somebody had a case of the Mondays, right? I mean, I've had bad Mondays before. Jesus was hungry, and he goes to the tree because there were leaves on the tree. And, and that would lead him to believe that there would be fruit. And when Mark writes that it wasn't the season for figs, it would make us think that, th- that Jesus was being unreasonable. Uh, that as if the tree could, so- could talk, that the tree would say, dude, chillax, it's not time for figs yet. But, you know, I don't deserve to die about this. But something that I learned about fig trees, yes, that is how much I love you guys, I read up on trees this week, <laughs> is... Here's the thing about fig trees is that the fruit is supposed to come before the leaves. And so when Jesus saw leaves, it was reasonable for him to expect that there would be fruit there. And he had just uh, finished this hour-long walk from Bethany, and I've had this time where I, you know, I go out, out on a workout or if I'm running or something. Uh, I, I understand that post-workout hunger, you know, logic doesn't necessarily apply. It's just get me food now. And so Jesus yelling at a tree, I can, I can understand how he gets there. But Jesus is not hangry here. Uh, when Mark writes that it wasn't the season for figs, he meant that the figs had not yet reached their full ripeness. That that wouldn't happen until like the August to October time frame. It would happen in the fall. But in the spring, the fig tree would produce a little piece of fruit that you could eat. And that was supposed to come first, before the leaves. And when he goes to the tree, he doesn't find what he should reasonably expect to see. And he decides to use this tree now as an object lesson for his disciples. And this is not the first time that Jesus would use a fig tree to illustrate a point. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus tells this parable. Uh, There we go. There we go. Okay, so Jesus tells this parable in Luke chapter 13. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he, meaning the vine dresser, said to him, uh, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure or fertilizer. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. And so we don't get a lot of context. This is just kind of just an off story in Luke chapter 13. So we we don't really get an explanation of this parable. But let's try to make sense of this. All right, Sunday school, I'm going to answer in response here. Uh, How long, about how long did Jesus earthly ministry, sorry, about how long did Jesus's earthly ministry last? Class? About three years, okay? How long did this master come expecting to see fruit from this tree? Three years. So for three years, Jesus came 
And he came to teach Israel. He came for the lost sheep of Israel. And he was teaching them about God's kingdom. And after that time, the master comes back to the tree and he expects to see fruit. He expects to see Israel to start acting like the people of God that they were always supposed to be. But as we will read, he comes back to Jerusalem, and when he does not find the fruit that God expects that he should be able to see from his people, he curses the tree because it is better for the tree to serve as firewood than for it to be a false message to the world. Because when the creator sets an expectation for his creation, that expectation must be met. We spent a lot of time talking about this last week, that our faith is not based on just believing the right things or about saying the right things. Our faith is demonstrated by an active change in our actions. And in this context, I would say this, Jesus is the vine, we are the branches, and our master expects that, that change in our lives to produce fruit. We should be producing value for his kingdom. And if our master expects fruit, church, what should we provide him? All right, six of you are with me. Great. All right. But here's the good news. If you're thinking to yourself right now that I don't know how to do this, that I stink at this, that I don't know how to produce fruit, guess what? I think you're right. And I think I stink at it too. But the good news is our God never asks us to do something that we can't accomplish without his help. You were never meant to do this on your own. He will constantly and deliberately give you tasks that you are unable to accomplish without his help. And this is tough in our American culture because we put a lot of value and emphasis and this pressure on ourselves that somehow we need to try harder or work harder, that somehow we are going to be able to do enough to get God's attention and force him to love us, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. But God never intended that to be our path. Without God's Spirit at work in you, refining you, smoothing out your sharp edges, then you are never going to be able to produce fruit. And that means that you cannot please your master. You cannot meet his expectations. And that's why he doesn't abandon us. That's why he gives us the Holy Spirit to live inside of us so that this plan can be accomplished. He will never ask us to do anything that we aren't able to accomplish without his help. And there's something that I want to point out here is that obedience to your master, that is not what brings blessing into your life. And I've made this mistake before. I thought that if I was a good little boy, that if I followed all the rules, that this meant God was going to bless me more than he would bless other people. I've heard it expressed this way. uh, uh, Obedience doesn't produce blessings. Obedience reveals the blessings that God promises. This isn't about doing the right thing so that God will give you a piece of candy at the end of the day. It's about, and it's also not about doing the wrong thing and God's going to make you do chores, you know, rake up the leaves or go rake the lawn or, or your room. It's God didn't change the rules or lower his expectations because Jesus came. From the beginning, there has always been blessings to be found when we followed God's way. And there are consequences when we go our own way. And this is what Jesus is calling out when he sees this tree on his way into the city. Because when Jesus first gets a hold of you, it's okay that all you have is leaves and you have no fruit. That's fine. But when you do commit to being his disciples, when he comes back, he expects to see a fruitful life. He expects that you will trust him and that you will start following him and you will start to make your life about the things that he's about. 
So after cursing the tree, Jesus goes into the temple, and it just seems like his day gets worse. I mean, I get cranky when I'm hungry, but for the love. All right, verse 15. And when they came into Jerusalem, he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. In case you're not familiar with what's going on in this scene, this was the week of Passover. If you were a Jewish person in this time, one of your life ambitions, a bucket list item for you, would be to make it to Jerusalem at least once in the week of Passover during your lifetime. And so uh, you would make this journey no matter how long it took you. You would travel that, you travel far to bring sacrifices of money and livestock to the temple. And this was an act of worship to Yahweh. And it would fulfill a life's goal for you. And historians estimate that as many as 250,000 lambs would be sacrificed the week of Passover each, every year. Each lamb would represent an entire family. And so you can imagine the mass of humanity that was in Jerusalem during these times and milling about the temple. But people of ill intent found a profit opportunity here because people would come from all corners of the world and one of the sacrifices that you had to make would you'd come in and you'd have to pay a temple tax. Uh, it would be about two days' worth of wages. And so if you came from, let's just say, Egypt and you brought your Egyptian currency, you'd have to bring your own money. That's what you had. But when you went to go put in the money into the collection for the temple and a temple official would stop you and say, oh, no, no, your, your money's no good here you have to pay it in the currency of the temple. And lucky for you, we have a currency exchange. You can give us your money, and we'll give you the shroot bucks, or temple bucks, uh, and the markup's only about 32%. And now your gift is acceptable to God. You would bring a lamb for sacrifice. Again, you would have to travel hundreds of miles on foot or on a donkey or something to bring this, this animal with you. You had raised this animal yourself, and you brought it to sacrifice it at the temple to atone for the sins of your family. But on your way to the priest, a Levite would pull you aside and say, "Yeah, I don't know about that lamb, man. I mean, look, like that left hind leg's about, uh, about an inch shorter than the other ones. His wool's a little dirty, and come on, his eye's a little cross-eyed. Come on, let's look at it here. And so uh, that God is not going to accept that lamb. But lucky for you, we have temple lambs here. And only at a markup of 37%. Lucky you. And now you can buy this, and now you can atone for the sins of your family. And these were just two of the scams that people were running to profit off of what was supposed to be an act of worship. So when you read this scene, and if you think that this is just a continuation of Jesus' bad hair day, think again. Because this was a huge market for them to make money. And you can think of the authority that a person would have to have to pull this off, to, to pull off what Jesus does here. He brings all this to a, a, a halt. I mean, imagine the level of charisma and authority that one man would have to happen to step onto the floor of the New York Stock Exchange and just say, knock it off, stop what you're doing, and it does. But even beyond the people, I mean, we're talking about thousands of lambs and money-changing hands and waiting in lines, and all of this stops on a dime. The temple authorities noticed this. They immediately started to plot a way to kill him. 
And then after grinding the scene to, at the temple to a halt, Jesus and his disciples leave the city and they see the fig tree again. And Peter's like, hey, master, that tree you cussed out, it's withered to the root. And so it seems like there's the fig tree thing and then the temple thing and we're back to the fig tree and you'll miss this. The fig tree is a demonstration by Jesus of what was wrong with the temple. When we see that the tree is rotted to the roots, remember, the temple was the epicenter of the Jewish life. The, the temple, yes, yeah, all right. <laughs> I love the affirmation, all right. <laughs> the, all right, so <laughs> the temple was this, the one place on earth that God would come and draw close to his people. And they could go and they could count on God being there and meeting them there. And so the temple, it was built on a part of what was called Mount Moriah. And if you aren't familiar, this is the place where Abraham offers his son Isaac as a sacrifice to God. And God meets Abraham there. And because and in that place, this is known as a holy place because of the faith that was demonstrated there by Abraham. David would buy a piece of that land and dedicate it for the construction of the temple. Later generations would create this magnificent house of worship. This land that the temple was on was holy to the Jewish people because it was where they reminded each other that God wants to come and commune with us. But instead of holiness being on display here, the worst of humanity was on display. This was not a house of prayer. It was a market. It was where people in positions of power were profiting off of the desperate conditions of people who just wanted to worship their God. The people who were the furthest away from God were kept even farther from him because people wanted to make money. And Jesus calls it a den of robbers. And Jesus has enough, and he drives the animals and the people out of the temple, and inside of a generation, the temple would be destroyed. And Jesus makes the promise that this building, this temple, has lost its way. But now you will be the temple. God will dwell inside of his people. We now get to be the place where Almighty God comes near. Isn't that good news? We don't have to pursue God, He comes near to us. Being connected to the vine means tapping into what Jesus was teaching us. If you listen to the parables of Jesus, everything Jesus did and taught was to display the goodness that is available to us in the kingdom of God right now. But the operative word here, it's God's kingdom, not ours. If you're frustrated by the lack of power and fruit in your life right now, then you might be trying by your own power to produce something that you're not capable of producing on your own. We're called to produce the fruit of the Spirit, but what I think we most often do is produce the fruit of ourselves. If you're a sorry, miserable cuss, then you're going to turn the people around you into sorry, miserable cusses. But God doesn't call us to produce our own fruit. He calls us to produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. So if you look in the mirror and you look at the fruit of your life, if it doesn't look like that, then you need to go back to the source of your life. So they leave the temple and they walk by the tree. And I just want to take a second here and uh, just point out something about my boy Peter. He gets a bad rap and he totally deserves it here. Because <laughs> um, Peter walks by the tree and he's like, hey, the, Jesus, the tree's dead. And I just imagine Peter being like, or Jesus being like, Peter, what do you do to just, just watch me do, man? 
You have seen me calm storms. You have seen me raise multiple people from death to life. Uh, I have walked on water. Heck, you've walked on water. I think I can handle a tree. And they walk by the tree, and Jesus is showing that the temple, just like the tree, is rotten to the root. The glory era of the temple, where the temple and its priests were the place where God was meet his people, that time is over. And Jesus becomes that place. In Jesus, we find God's presence, and he says, I am now going to pour that presence, my spirit, upon you. I'm going to let my spirit live inside you and guide your life. It's important to remember and to learn why the temple failed. It's because they had lost sight of the reason they existed. Jesus said the temple was to be a house of prayer for all nations, but the temple turned into a place where people were exploited and left behind. It's a warning that our church needs to heed because we exist for this purpose, to embrace, proclaim, and display the kingdom of God. That is the beating heart of everything we do. Back to verse 20, and Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, that fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. And therefore, I tell you that whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And so do you notice what Jesus does here? He says, as the illustration to say, have faith in God. We often twist passages like this to mean that if we just believe the right things and we believe them hard enough, that we can do anything. But this is not about the strength of your faith. It's about where you place that faith. We don't come to God with our own expectations of him. We come to God with open hearts and empty hands, and we ask him to fill us, and we let him take the wheel of our lives. And Jesus is telling us here that if that is the type of faith that you have, that you can move a mountain. He says that you can do something absolutely crazy. And what's crazier than moving a mountain? Well, he says if the Spirit of God is directing your life, if what he has done for you is the driving force behind everything that you do, then you could do absolutely the craziest thing you've ever heard of, which is forgive somebody. And you might say, hey, preacher man, you know, how, how can I forgive this person? You don't know how bad they've hurt me. And that's true. And I think they did it on purpose. They probably did. And if I forgive them, if that means that I have to continue to let them have access to me, that means I could get hurt again and I have to be vulnerable. And yes, all of that is true. You, by your own ability, can't do something as big as forgive somebody else. But through the grace of Jesus Christ, what he has given to all of us, he has given us the power of his spirit and the truth of his word to live this out. And it starts by remembering what he has done in your own life. Because the entire laundry list that you're going to have against somebody else as to why they can't, why you can't forgive them, God has just a big, if not a bigger list on you. And he decided to rip it up. So let's talk to each other. And let's listen to what he has done in other people's lives. He's putting his power on display in all of us. 
so that you can believe and that you can have faith. Our Bible is full of stories of heroes, and I use that term very, very loosely because, as I said in our very first message in this series, our heroes in the Bible rarely act heroically. I mean, I sat down and just off the top of my head, without even cracking the Bible open, here's what I came up with. Noah was a drunk. Abraham lies about his life where she's almost taken as a sex slave in Egypt. His son Isaac basically does the same thing to his, his wife. Jacob was a liar, a thief, and he poisoned his children against each other by playing favorites. Moses killed a guy in anger. David's life was a wild display of adultery and violence. I'm only about a third of the way through the Old Testament, and I skipped a bunch of stuff, guys. None of the heroes that you're going to read about in your Bible were very special. The reason their stories are remembered was because they believed and they trusted a special God. And I want you to know this. Your story isn't over. If you're here today, if you're listening or watching today, God still has something to teach you. I've been at this game a while, and I've had many well-intentioned conversations with people who on a Sunday morning after our service is over, they just can't help but tell me how they think they, that I might have been able to do my job better. Whether it's leading worship or sharing the lesson, and after eating all of the crow that they want me to eat, I ask them, well, what did you learn? And they look at me like I have three heads. Because they didn't come to church to learn. They came to hear what they already knew. I'm not saying that I have all the answers. I don't. I'm not saying I'm the smartest person in this room. I'm not. But what I, I'm saying that we all have something to learn from each other, that we are all struggling to produce the fruit that our master expects from us when he returns. And there's not a person in this room who's capable of doing that on their own. So together, we need to ask each other and ask God, how do I do this life? How do I parent How do I be a good husband? Or how do I be a good wife? Or how do I work? How do I play? How do I rest? How do I do all of these things and bear the fruit that you want me to bear? And the world will try to tell you how to do all of these things and which of them is the most important. But this is the place where we come together and we reject the world's wisdom. We come to the author of life and we ask him how we should do it. We ask him to rewrite our stories of brokenness and failure and turn it into a story of redemption where he gets the glory. So how do we produce the fruit that our master rightfully demands of us? We live by the Spirit and we let him guide us to where we need to be. He may stick your feet in fertilizer. He may soak you in water. But your value isn't found in what you're doing. You are valuable because you are made in the image of God and beautiful. The darkness is real, and it's heavy right now. At times, it's going to seem like the darkness is winning, and when it seems like all hope is lost, just a few days after this story, remember Good Friday, the Friday of the week of Christ's passion when Jesus died on the cross. There never seemed to be a more clear-cut victory of darkness over the light, but little did our enemy know he had just sealed his own fate. Because that death was the coronation of our king. Jesus, who came to be the king, not of this earth, but a king of peace for all mankind. It's not about our abilities. 
It's not about our ability to transform us. It's about his ability to transform us into the type of people that will bear the fruit that he has planned for us since the garden. We can do this. We can be the people that he deserves if we would let him use us. I think he's worth it. I think he deserves it. And I think he's worthy of our worship right now. Let's stand and sing a song to him.